Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Investment banking is a high-stakes business, even in the best of times. Throw in a global health crisis that's whipsawed the public markets, and you have the ingredients for a very stressful situation. Today's returning guest is Howard Katz, Managing Director of Mackey Research Capital. Just four weeks ago, Howard joined us to share his perspectives on raising capital and engaging investment bankers. That said, those were vastly different times than we're experiencing now. For me, when I picture markets crashing, it conjures up images of the 2008 market meltdown. Bankers holding their heads in despair on the steps of the exchange, and traders with looks of complete disbelief. Perhaps these same scenes played out as our markets tumbled from record highs, but Howard brings a refreshing dose of calmness. He shares advice directly from the front lines of advising and financing his clients. It is reassuring to hear his guidance given these really unprecedented circumstances. I hope this episode provides you with peace of mind. Perhaps the best summary is that we're all in this together and that positive and proactive communication will see you through this. So enjoy this episode and stay well. On the line, I have Howard Katz. Howard, you're a managing director at Mackey Research Capital. Your focus is investment banking. You're also an entrepreneur. What I'd like to do is, well, welcome you back to the show because not even a month ago, we had an interview where you shared some great insights about the markets and about how to finance, but those were very different times. So welcome back to the show and uh, looking forward to our discussion. Thanks, Corey. Glad to be back. Yeah. Now, for the listeners who didn't, who haven't listened to the previous episode, which was about two or three episodes back, do you mind giving us a brief about yourself? Sure. I'm an imagining director at Mackey Research Capital. Work with small and mid-cap companies in the innovation sector, basically focused on growth-orientated companies, primarily in the Canadian capital markets, but as well have a specialty in working and bringing over companies from Israel to the Canadian capital markets as well. It's, well, got to be different times now. And conversations have to have changed between you and your clients, you and your investors, and, and I'm sure at the firm as well. Not even a month ago or just over a month ago, we recorded record highs on all the indices. And now here we are seeing these historic drops, some 35% in the global markets. As a banker, can you walk us through this? What was that experience like watching this unfold and unfold so quickly? Yeah, I would say, first of all, I just want to take a step back and say that from a personal perspective and a financial perspective, that my first priority even though, you know, obviously this is a financial show, but my focus has been on the health and safety of those that I work with and everyone around me in terms of my professional, but also my personal life. So when these events occur, you know, it's always very shocking, but you do have to prioritize. And so, you know, I am pleased to say that on the the health and welfare front, everyone in my immediate circle has been doing well. And that has been, to me, the biggest positive 
that I've been taking out of this crisis. Now, if I being, interject there, uh, yeah, we have a capitalist who's putting community above profit. So good on you. And, it, and it, <laughs> I'm actually very happy to see in, in general in Canada how much the population is, has taken this very seriously. I think we could get into how the government's dealing with it. And there's probably such a huge debate there. Let's not go yeah. there. overall as the population is the community that we live in across the country. Yeah. Is neat to yeah. See. Absolutely. And so just wishing all my clients and friends and family continued good health and safety. But that being all said, looking at the capital market transaction uh, scene, rather, it's been unprecedented. And by definition, I think corrections always have a certain unprecedented feeling to them. And in fact, that's what by definition almost makes them corrections. And so if we wind the clock backwards to 2008, when we had the massive credit crunch uh, that hit the market, really, the, you know, primed essentially by the uh, subprime market, that felt like at the time the world was ending. And in fact, you did have massive government intervention and uh, stimulus packages taken out. But, you know, some would argue a little bit too late at that time. And so fast forward to this time around, we have had some, call it minor market gyrations in the last, call it uh, 12 or 13 years since, since that occurred. But really, this is the next sort of major event that I've witnessed uh, while working in the capital markets. What I would say is that the government's learning the lessons from the 2008 have been very quick to react. They've taken a lot of preventative measures. And so you have seen the central banks work in a somewhat coordinated fashion to inject uh, massive amounts of liquidity into the market. And really the backbone of the market, what people may or may not realize is it's really a lot about the uh, credit market and having the ability for all the way up to the sovereign level down to the large corporations being able to access the debt markets. And so we have seen massive amounts of liquidity and credit being injected into the market to basically make sure that the backbone of the financial system, you know, remains intact and functions smoothly. So there's definitely, there's no question that we've seen a lot of stress being put onto the system, and there will be undoubtedly more stress be put onto the system. But so far, it seems to be working. It, it is early days, I would just add as a caveat. So it, it is difficult to sort of say that the solution has worked, but so far, it has been working. The other response that we've seen is at the government level, um, the fiscal responses by the governments. And, you know, again, the United States today approved the $2.2 trillion package in response to this uh, crisis. And those are really, call it wartime level type of capital injections into the system. You know, you're seeing a lot of countries looking to effectively backstop a good portion of wages for many of the vulnerable employees that are in the system. And so, it really is a coordinated global effort that we see being rolled out here. And it is still too early to tell ultimately how this will play out definitively. But at this stage, I would say that there are countries and central banks are taking lessons learned in the past and applying them effectively to the current situation. Hmm. Now, 
how would you apply this or this situation? Or how would you now advise your clients on the current situation? I mean, there's, there has to be certain covenants that perhaps some of your clients have broken in a, in a debt financing, for example, if they had a certain debt to equity ratio that there was need to be maintained by their financiers and that's broken. Now, how would you approach a situation like that? And how would you look for ways to avoid it in the future, especially given this huge volatility? Well, look, I would say that, you know, ideally most businesses have a decent relationship with their financial partners. And so at the very least, there's an ability to have some candid and sort of cards on the table type of conversations with them. And the reality is, is that the macro situation is that everyone kind of understands and appreciates the global crisis that's going on here. So you can't really pick this one up to bad management. Well, with exception, maybe the airlines. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I mean, look, at the end of the day, this is sort of almost a force majeure type of situation, right? And I have had some clients suggest that this does invoke a, a certain force majeure type of scenario. And the reality is, in the majority of cases, most people who hold debt don't necessarily want to go into a situation where they invoke foreclosure or some sort of action against the company because most debt providers are not in the businesses not in the business of taking over of companies and frankly you know they don't want to be taking over companies that are under stress an environment that is just uncertain so i think that you know the discussions i've been having with companies is that everyone is trying to be somewhat measured and reasonable you know about their approach to dealing with their respective counterparties and so i think at least currently from what i'm seeing is that for the large part people are being sort of realistic in these markets And, you know, again, I'm on the technology side. So if there is a company that has a lender that has a debt with a technology company, they really don't want to be forcing any action on their covenant in this environment. Because again, it doesn't really make good business sense on either side. Yeah. I mean, the truth would be that debt providers are not in the business of debt collection unless they have to be. Correct. What What other pieces of advice? I mean, what I'm taking from there is that if anything right now is the time for very candid conversations and and perhaps even relationship building, given the vulnerability of both sides of the equation. Yeah, I think that's right. This is a time to act in a somewhat measured way. You know, I really, the discussions I've been having with companies and investors on both sides is that like now is not the time to make any rash decisions. Or frankly, I do think that we will be benefiting from a lot more information over the next few weeks. So I think the majority of my advice is to a lot of issuers and to a lot of investors is to let's take a pause here and let's just wait for some more information to come. And we may benefit, and I don't think there's any medals being handed out for trying to make a rash decision today and rush out and try to do something because Sure. In every sort of crisis situation, for a small subset, there's an opportunity to, quote unquote, make a killing. But that's for a very small subset. For the majority of people, I would say is that you do need to just basically try to stay the course. Don't make any rash decisions. 
the way this pandemic could play out is at an oversimplified level. It could play out either as a relatively short-term occurrence where, you know, we're all hoping and praying for this, that in the next few weeks, there's signs of relief in terms of what we're, everyone's calling flattening the curve. So, that you know, we can see that the curve starts to flatten. And then over the following few weeks, then hopefully within, say, call it the end of April, we see a resumption to somewhat more normalized reintegration of society. Right? I, so I when, hear you. you know, right. But that being said, that's short term. What I am counseling people is that that's hoping for the best. But I also do counsel clients to prepare for the worst. And the more conservative views that we've been hearing is that this unfortunately may continue on to July. And at this point, I'm sure there's, there's strong opinions on both views. But as a player sitting here in Toronto, from my perspective, it could go either way. So what, what's I, I just your concern with the kind of the systemic aspects of this and the economic aspects of this? And I mean, is there any visibility or dialogue from the more analytical side of, of your brain or the, the brain trust that would be in Mackey Research? Yeah. So again, the longer this drags out, the longer this is going to have a real negative impact on the economy. And so speaking with partners and within my firm and clients and outside of the firm, I think there's a collective sense that, yeah, two to four weeks, call it a month of this social distancing and this uncertainty will have a certain level of impact on the economy. But the longer it drags out, the longer the economic impact will have on the long-term prospects for the GDP of you know the world. Yeah. So this is part of the challenge is that I don't know what I don't know yet. In other words, there's a lot of variables out there that will continue to be under stress that will come to light as time progresses, right? So I think today it's almost impossible to really talk about accurate forecasting. And although people like to try to quantify and forecast, this is precisely the problem is that, and this is why I'm sort of urging sort of a pause is because there just isn't enough information today to be able to say, okay, this is what the economy is going to look like. This is what the impact is going to look like because we just don't have the level of information required because we just haven't finished the pandemic yet. So really Mm. what I'm encouraging clients to do is just to really focus on the here and now focus on what you can do to keep your operation stable in the status quo and then wait for some more time to elapse when you'll be able to when everyone will collectively have a better sense and idea of which direction this is going to head in whether this is going to be something more short term or whether this is going to be more long term so you know hitting the pause button and taking those measures today to sort of prepare for the longer term, I think is prudent. And most companies I've been speaking to have been in, um, have gone into cost containment or cost reduction. So, you know, just keep trying to reduce their burn rate as much as practical. And it really depends on what the next couple of weeks give us in terms of information flow that will ultimately enable companies to make more informed decisions going forward. I often think, I mean, when you picture the 2008 crisis, it conjures up images of white-collar workers sitting on the, the steps of the exchange, the steps of their buildings as Lehman Brothers is imploding, and, and you know, just these somewhat high-stress situations. 
Can you paint a picture for us what it was perhaps like as this was melting down or as the markets were melting down and, and the situation? Or was it just completely, you know what, ride it out? How was the tone in the office? And of course, this would have been pre-quarantine. So are we, are we talking about 2008 or right no, now? No, as or, of late, like, given the last... Oh, as of late, yeah. Well, gosh, I mean, you can go to my LinkedIn. This thing unfolded so quickly. I mean, you go to my, my LinkedIn page and there I was celebrating my birthday with my coworkers and say, and, but we were like social distancing and that was on a Friday. Okay. And by the Monday we were in like complete lockdown. Right. So the speed of this pandemic or the awareness of the pandemic really unfolded at a real, again, I, I speak to everyone and no one in the common thread is just, no one saw this coming. It was just really, so it wasn't like there was this sort of sense of foreboding. It was really just more of this unknown, like that was, and this is, we're talking about mid-March, right? So this is like, call it March 13. And then really, here we are, March 27. So two weeks later, and, you know, the market's just basically gone, you know, went into sort of a free fall, except for like the, maybe the last couple of days. So, um, free fall, whipsaw. You know, yeah, free, for the free whipsaw. Yeah, I mean, I was talking to some of the brokers as well. And, you know, look, again, many of them deal with uh, people's life savings and people are justifiably concerned about their retirements or the wealth that they've built up over, you know, decades in the span of a few weeks uh, being reduced by a substantial amount. That being said, some people were took the opportunity to to start to buy some blue chips that they felt that were on sale. So there are some people who are able to tolerate some level of risk and are able to invest in those circumstances. But for most, it's really about just being able to understand. And frankly, the reason why I brought up 2008 is that every correction is different. There's different catalysts for every correction. I've been through the, you know, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, I went through, that was one of the earlier ones in my career was, you know, I went through the dot-com bust and in 2008 went through the, the financial crisis. The common element is that after the bust, people picked themselves up again. There was a collective drive by society to return to some level of normalcy. And, you know, we see that the markets ultimately uh, recovered over time. And so my message in that regard is that we still haven't gotten out outside of the crisis. But if 100 years of history is any indication that eventually society has a collective will to resume its drive to you know normalcy and we'll recover from this in due course. Hmm. Now, something that's, I think, well, it's unprecedented is the, the recent $2 trillion, $2 trillion plus package coming out of the United States. And now, yeah. I wanted to, you know, even philosophically discuss that with you and what your thoughts are on it. And maybe I'll, I'll lay the groundwork for my thoughts and, and you can beat them up as you will. When I look at a $2 trillion package that is going to be allocated to a number of large corporations, including the airlines, and primarily, you know, to focus on in on the airlines, not to, uh, well, no, I'm going to single them out. I'm of the mindset that they should let them fail. And it comes down to the fact that if there's enough demand, those airlines would be up and running the very next day with a different management team and a different group of shareholders. But here we are with an incredible bailout package for a lot of industry players or a lot of industries and a lot of players there, including the citizen, right down to the citizen level, which I think is you know, fair enough, should it be needed. 
But how do you feel? What's your take on allowing large corporations like airlines to take these mega bailouts? In these types of circumstances, I think there's going to be good decisions and let's call it less good decisions made with respect to allocations of funds. I would say that the greater unknown of letting a company fail versus perhaps giving them capital to continue to do business is less damaging than letting them fail, right? And so, you know, I think there was regret in 2008 for letting certain institutions fail because the the fallout tended to be systemic. There was a, a domino effect, right? And I think there's a fear that if you start to let larger corporations go, you start to hit all the companies at a systemic level. I mean, like everything... Airlines are not just about airlines working in isolation, right? Airlines are clients that purchase planes from Boeing. And Boeing is an organization that purchases a huge amount of services from all these smaller shops. So the knock-on effect is potentially quite huge. And so it's not just about, you know, pilots and stewardesses, but it's also about engineers. And then it's about tool and die shops that supply the parts and, and really the whole related infrastructure necessary to make these businesses, you know, work. So I tend to think that trying to maintain the system in place is a better solution than letting certain elements of it fail. Because, yeah, maybe it seems like corporate welfare, but again, if all these people, if the companies do fail, then you're just going to be giving welfare out directly to recipients because they're going to be unemployed. So I think it's more productive to have the companies continue to operate. And I think that, and hopefully in the longer term, this bears out. I mean, that's what we saw, I think, in 2008. There was just the knock-on effect was much worse because some of the you know institutions, as you pointed out, uh, like Lehman's Brothers, for example, they failed. So then you had, and it became very difficult to extricate some elements of, of those companies' failures from the global system. So when I look at, you know, I don't have to pick just airlines, but you want all your major industries to at least weather the storm so that they could ultimately, you know, come out. So when this pandemic does end and the financial stress related to it does end, people can just sort of get back to normal as quickly as possible. Hmm. I understand and, and where you're coming from. And I, I think, I mean, yes, the systemic impacts of letting an airline fail. And I'm just, let's just use them for, for an example. Yeah, they are far reaching. I mean, it touches Boeing and Boeing touches thousands of providers and, you know, on and on and on. But at the same time, that demand is not going to cease. And you're taking what is citizen dollars and you're putting them back into the, to the airlines or the corporations. And I guess the question that I have is, where does the buck stop if you keep on printing money and, and handing it out in these mega bailouts? Like $2 trillion is just it's unprecedented. It, and, and so yeah, what, what's the longer it's, term? It's, Should we not rip off the Band-Aid? Yeah. I, you know, again, I'm not saying it's a perfect solution. I think it's for better or for worse, it's the solution that's been implemented. At this point, I'm not going to second guess it. Like I, I don't think it was the wrong decision to make, quite candidly. I think it was the, in fact, I think it was the correct decision because, like I said, keeping the system intact, keeping the airline industry intact is it just basically enables business to resume it as normal once this crisis passed. And I, I just don't necessarily see it as certainly some airlines did better than others, but overall, you know, airlines had been in my mind, at least, doing 
a heck of a lot better in recent years than they ever had, right? Travel was at record places, you know, you know, airlines yep. for the most part were, were, were profitable. These are good businesses. I do see stress coming to companies, potentially anyways, that are going to be affected by travel. I mean, hotels, I think, are going to have uh, challenges near term anyways, because again, you tell me how you're going to feel about walking into a hotel room that may or may not have been disinfected properly. This is the type of environment that we're in, unfortunately. So these are really unusual circumstances. And pick an industry that any sort of property play is going to be under stress because retail outlets are going to be probably a little bit more, uh, you know, they've already been under assault from Amazon. An event like this could accelerate people migrating to Amazon potentially, right? So there are all kinds of industries that I think are going to be affected by this. And I think it really is in the the best interest of everyone that we try to maintain the economy in status quo as much as possible. Because if we don't, then we've only introduced more uncertainty to the outcome. What I'm hearing is the, the unknown of letting capitalism play out as theoretically as it would or it should could be far more painful than what is the decision. And, and you know what? I can argue both sides of this. I, I will, I'll put that out there. I hear where you're coming from. It's almost in the short term, perhaps it's better we maintain and do whatever is required to get back to a status quo versus just yeah. saying, hey. Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. I mean, look, you're talking to a capitalist. I believe in capitalism. I think it's important. I think capitalism has created more wealth than any other system, you know, has done more to lift more people out of poverty globally than any other system in history. And I think it's a massively important aspect of our society. But that being said, the counterbalance to that is that capitalism is not Darwinism. You know, it's not survival of the (laughs) fittest, right? So so it it is, it does need to be tempered to some degree in in appropriate circumstances by government intervention. And we can debate about what the, the appropriate level of government intervention is, but I think that in these circumstances, if we're going to err, I think it's better to err on the side of caution. And I think that in these circumstances, erring on the side of caution is perhaps giving too much capital to supporting industries. I think that to me, that's the most prudent way to go in in these circumstances. Okay. Well, interesting to take your, uh, or to hear your, your views on it. And I know we did go down a path there being a bit more philosophical to capitalism and even bringing Darwin in there. So I appreciate that. Now, do you have any predictions on the new normal? And, and I know we touched on this and, and just also looking as we round out our time here, any final advice for companies navigating through these markets? Yeah, I'll try to break that down. I think that the new normal is, in my mind, hopefully the new normal goes back to a modified old normal, where I think that we resume our daily lives and go about our businesses. I do think, though, that certainly what we're seeing, you know, with, for example, we're talking over Zoom right now, and I think that's a telling indicator for the future. I think that entrepreneurs are going to be looking at ways to increase our effectiveness at working in future scenarios like this. So I think after every major crisis, you know, the world tends to learn from those and then start preparing to adapt 
from the prior crisis. So I do think we're going to see potentially an explosion in sort of so- social distancing companies, like there are companies that are leveraged to social distancing. So, you know, distance learning, being able to transact legal documents over distances, being able to conduct business over distances. And that's just really on the technology side. I think that we're going to see companies that bricks and mortars if anything, are, are under you know immediate threat right now. And so I think they're going to try to respond to that threat by introducing new technologies that will help bolster their market share in the aftermath of this. I think on the biotech side, I think what we're going to see are companies that are going to be trying to come up with healthcare solutions for you know future avian flu outbreaks. That's what this COVID virus is, basically. So I think there's going to be a couple of new industries growing as a result of this. That's what I would say. Hmm. When I was been talking, you know, the second part of your question is what's my advice for issuers in this environment? I really think that companies need to be nimble. And I think they need to, as I talked about earlier, they need to sort of make preparations. One of the advices that I've been giving to companies is, you know, just, and again, it's at a high level, and I'm not advising companies to finance today, but undoubtedly in the small cap space, there will be companies that are looking to uh, finance. So make sure that your company's in order is able to access the capital markets when that time does return and it will return. Think about how you are adapting your business to the new circumstances. On a housekeeping level, one piece of advice that I give issuers lately is consider making your company short form eligible. And what I mean by that is that companies have an ability to raise capital a different way, whether it be by private placement or prospectus. One of the unique features of the Canadian capital markets is that we have a system called the prompt offering prospectus system, which enables companies to access capital by way of what we call a short form prospectus. And that is an invaluable tool for companies accessing capital, in my opinion. We use it to great effect with many issuers and you can do issues. It's very cost effective. It enables companies to do prospectus level issues, which are frankly much more effective than private placement issues. And and they become I would say they become cost effective in deals as small as call it three to five million. For sure, five million. I would even argue for deals as low as three million. And candidly, because investors are going to be much more risk averse post these market gyrations, I think that being able to offer a security that's freely tradable immediately upon close as opposed to a private placement where investors are expected to to hold on to their stock for a period of four months, that can make the difference between an investor saying yes or no. And furthermore, you just have access to a much wider range of investors, you have a, a much wider pool of investors when you have a prospectus versus a private placement offering. So, you know, I'm happy to talk to issuers about that, how they might be able to do it in a uh, fairly cost. There is a cost to it, but I do think it is a worthwhile cost if they have the time. And I'm working with legal teams and service providers to be able to get that cost down to a manageable level that enables them to access capital in the most effective way. So that's a piece of advice I've been given at issuers lately. Yeah, I think, you know, that's actually really interesting. And I'm going to make sure to note that in the introduction here, because there's a couple of pieces there that you mentioned about the short form prospectus that I think are very applicable now. So uh, I'll be sure to note that. And other than that, let's wrap up for our time here. But 
people can find you on LinkedIn, Howard Katz on LinkedIn, as well as Mackey Research Capital. Do you have anything final to share or is there anywhere else people can follow your work? Sure. Yeah. Those uh, LinkedIn and, and my website are, are great places to connect to me. If you're an issuer that needs to talk or an investor that's uh, that wants to understand the market better, I'm happy to connect with people and, and discuss their needs with them. I would say today, be focused on the longer term. I would get my advice to people today is to try to, if they can, try to ignore the stock quote today with the understanding that over the next period of time, history has shown us that things do return to normal. So just sort of stay the course. Don't be in a rush to make any, uh, any big decisions right now and just be patient and prepare for better days ahead. Well, excellent. I guess it can uh, hopefully only get better. So, Howard, I want to thank you uh, for the time. And yeah, thanks again for coming on a second time, especially to uh, discuss these very interesting circumstances. So very much appreciate it. My pleasure, Corey. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.